Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9? This week we'll be reading verses 15 to 23. I think I'm going to start with verse 1, actually, so when we get to verse 15, you'll be able to join. Let me remind you that the Apostle Paul, in dealing with the church in Corinth, is dealing with a lot of division. There's, there's an awful lot of uh, schismatic, divisive behavior in the church, and he has to work on a whole bunch of different things. One of the things he has to work on is the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so he's going on at great length about it. And in the middle of him dealing with whether or not it's right to eat meat sacrificed to idols there in Corinth, he, after dealing with it for, for quite a while, he then says this. At the end of chapter 8, he says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble... I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. He's trying to get the church to be united on this issue. And he says, look, if it's going to cause my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. And what he's saying to them is, come on, people. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on. Do you really want to hurt your brother and sister in Christ by what you eat? Look at me. If it's going to cause my brother to stumble, I'm never going to eat meat again. All right? And then he realizes, as he says this, that they don't have much commitment to him. They don't have much respect for him. They don't, you know, he's not their mother. All right? And so they're not identifying with him so closely that when he says, look, if if me, if it'll hurt, I'm not going to ever eat meat again. And he's realizing he doesn't have them. You know, that's the kind of plea that normally everybody would be with you. Well, if you're going to do that, well, then I'm going to do it. And so what does he do? Well, he stops at this point, realizes he's left them behind. He says, I I better, I better get them again. And so he says, okay, you're forgetting who I am. And with chapter 8, verse 1, I mean, chapter 9, verse 1, he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? You see, he's saying, okay, dude, listen, this is who I am. This is the office I hold. This is my condition, freedom. If it's going to hurt my brother, I'll never eat meat again. You remembering who I am? All right. And he says, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and doesn't use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? 
Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake. It was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? The church is divided. The issue is food. Paul holds himself up as an example, and he says, hey, if it's going to hurt my weaker brother for me to eat meat, I'll never eat meat again. Then he looks at them. They're not with him. He says, am I not free? You know, he realizes they're not with him. Am I not free? Don't I have a... In other words, do you remember who I am? And then he says, don't I have a right to be married? Don't I have a right to have a wife that I take around, just like all the other apostles and just like the Lord's brothers and just like Cephas? Or am I the only one, me and Barnabas, are we the only ones that have to not have a wife? By this time, the Corinthians should be ashamed of themselves. Do do you understand that? They should be ashamed of themselves. They think so lightly of the Apostle Paul. They just take for granted the things that he has sacrificed for the sake of their souls. Well, that's Paul. That's what he does. I don't know what's wrong with him, but he's not married. I don't know what's wrong with him, but he works. If he were a super apostle, he'd be married, and he wouldn't have to work, because we'd support him. But he's not a super apostle, he's a little short dude. He's got bad eyes, and his preaching isn't much. You see, they just despised him. And by despise, I don't mean hate. I mean something worse than hate. They were indifferent to him. And so here's this little squirrely guy going, what about me, what about me, what about me? And slowly, as he begins to make his case, okay, you can feel that it's like a little snowball growing into a snowman. All of a sudden, they're reminded who this man is. And when he says he's willing to go without one of his freedoms as an apostle, as the apostle Paul, all of a sudden, it makes them look completely, completely disgusting that they're like grasping on to their rights, you know. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, being the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And I'm telling you, they're grasping. Well, I'm not going to stop eating meat just because so-and-so is so stupid as to think that idols are anything. I mean, that's just dumb. Why should I listen to them? Why should I be worried about them? I'm going to eat my meat. Paul says, hey, if it's going to hurt my brother, I'll never eat meat again. They say, well, that's you, Paul. Hey, wait, you remember who I am? Am I not free? Don't I have the right to care? And he begins to list the things that he has done to serve the church. I'm not married. Now, mind you, everybody else was, so don't get in your mind that every pastor should be And I don't know how to say this because our experience of pastors who aren't married is Roman Catholic priests. And so what I want to say is that every pastor should be, but I can't say that because, of course, 
the natural position of Roman Catholic priests has always been the very opposite of what I want to say. And so you're wondering, well, what do you want to say? And I say, all right, that every pastor should be celibate. And of course, that's the one thing that we know the whole, the whole media of the whole country is broadcasting. The fact that the Roman Catholic Church is filled with men who aren't married and yet are not celibate. They've taken vows of celibacy and then they lived lives of hypocrisy and they pay out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's viewed as hate speech for me to say this in a, in a in a religious context, but it's good reporting when every newspaper talks about it every day. Listen. The norm in the church is the apostles and the brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ and Cephas. And the reason is it's better to marry than to burn. You don't want a predator in your pulpit. All right. Paul had a unique gift. We have women and men in our church who have unique gifts. We honor them. And so Paul says, hey, listen, I've given up marriage. I've given up being supported by you. I'm an apostle. I'm free. And he's going through this list of things, all right? And he says... In verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? In other words, come on, you guys. In nature, in the Old Testament law, why, even in the pagan temples, the priests get to eat the sacrifices. And what's the point? Well, we keep going. Do you not know, verse 13, that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? And so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. It's very interesting there that he says the Lord. He doesn't say scripture, he says the Lord. And so this is one of those places, again, where we have it directly from the Lord that our shepherds should be supported financially and materially by the people that they serve, all right? And so he says, verse 15, but I have used none of these things. Oh, man, they're not with him. And he goes through and he said, but I haven't used any of these. I've used none of these things. Now do you see that the little snowball is beginning to take up some snow? And all of a sudden, his stature is in the eyes of the people and in their hearts is beginning to assume what it ought to have with them. I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. You know what that's about, right? You've all had a Jewish mother. You know? Well, I won't even mention that I gave you birth. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm not being devious and manipulating you. I'm not telling you everything I've sacrificed so that I don't have to sacrifice anymore. <laughs> You've all been around people that do that, right? You know, they tell you how much they've sacrificed for you. And their goal is for them not to have to sacrifice anymore. 
But that's not Paul. And he makes that very clear here. So I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. In other words, so that you will begin to pay me. All right? For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. And we all know what that is, right? You've all heard people say, I'd rather die. And usually if they say that, it's something they feel very strongly about. So what does Paul feel strongly about, the Apostle Paul? Well, he feels very strongly he's not going to give up being able to boast about what? That he doesn't take any money. That's his boast. Okay? For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not my being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's pick it up again with verse 15, okay? But I have used none of these things, all the privileges, the freedoms, the right to support, the right to a wife. He says, I have used none of these things. And I'm not putting this on paper because I want to change that. I'd rather die than change that. I don't want your money. You, you feel that? I don't want your money. Now, why doesn't he want their money? Well, if we read on, you'll see why. I'd rather die than take your money. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So when Paul summarizes his gifting, his calling, his obligations, his duties, his charismas, his delegations, when Paul summarizes who God has made him and how God has placed things in him, what he does is he summarizes it with what words? For if I preach the gospel. You take everything Paul is, boil it down, and its summary is preach the gospel. I want to make a comment about this today because everybody today claims to be missional, 
claims to be gospel-centered. And what they mean by that is that gospel centrism casts off all the secondary and tertiary matters, right? We're gospel-centered. But I want you to understand that everything Paul does that we see recorded in the New Testament, both narrative and didactic sections where he teaches in the epistles, all of it is preaching the gospel. You can't separate preaching the gospel from the church. You can't separate it from admonition and correction. You can't separate it from encouragement. You can't separate it from making house visits at night with tears. You can't separate it from warnings. You can't separate it from the doctrine of manhood and womanhood. Everything he does is preaching the gospel. And so if he summarizes all those things that he does as, quote, preaching the gospel, unquote, and you have a high view of scripture, then preaching the gospel must be a a full-orbed thing and holistic thing. Now, why am I going? Well, look, the reason I'm going is because the conceit of those who talk about being gospel-centered, all right, is that they're hip and chic and cool and with it and young. And all of that adds up to holistic. You know, they don't eat things sprayed with chemicals, right? They go to blooming foods, right? They're holistic, right? They don't compartmentalize their life. They realize that you have to be completely pro-life. They have a holistic view of what it means to be pro-life. They're against nuclear weapons. They're against nuclear energy. They're against coal. And they care about unborn children. Holistic. Right? They care about the whole person. They're the advocates of social welfare ministries being at the heart of the church. They're for the city. And so they go out into the city and they go to the bars, they go to the opera, they go to the uh, S&M galleries of Maplethorpe. All of the city, all of life, the gospel. Do you understand? They're holistic. Not just this little thing of the gospel and no diaconal ministry. We have diaconal ministry. We, we believe in ministering to the whole man. Are you with me? Some of you, I hope, are with me. Okay? They're holistic. You know, we don't believe in having, um, you know, a, a two-stage toilet and then eating television dinners. Because it's like, oh, inconsistent. You know, if you're concerned about the environment with your toilet, you're not going to eat TV dinners because there's aluminum plates or whatever they have now. You're holistic. 
You see the big picture. You embrace the big picture. You don't try to compartmentalize things. Are you with me? Okay. You're holistic. Except when it comes to the gospel. And then you're the most atomistic, mind-numbingly atomistic people on the face of the earth. And you quote the Apostle Paul saying, I have determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so what you do is you preach Jesus Christ and him crucified alone. You never mention women, you never mention abortion, you never mention sodomite marriage, you never mention anything that could offend people because you're missional, you're gospel-centered, and you're, you hate holistic. <laughs> and yet Paul is amazingly holistic. He thinks there's some connection between manhood and womanhood in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, he refers to his letter to the Ephesians where he commands them not to have women exercising authority over men as being preach the gospel. And Jesus, when he gave the Great Commission, said, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. Holistic! And, 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 and then we make a big show of being gospel-centered and being mind-numbingly atomistic. And even when we preach the gospel, even when we know Jesus Christ and him crucified and nothing else, we take repentance away from faith. And so it's not really knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified, it's just knowing Jesus Christ. Because after all, if we preached him crucified, then others would have to take up their cross and follow him. Now that's why I went holistic. I mean, can we please be holistic? Can we please be as opposed to retrogressive as we can, and as affirming of progressive as we can. Can we please see the full man? Can we please embrace all of life with the authority of Jesus Christ? Can we please stop being mind-numbingly atomistic? Can we be, are you ready? Holistic! Whoops. Holistic! We have two stage toilets, and we don't eat TV dinners. Listen, every generation has its conceits. And all they ever have been is conceits. They're absolutely bogus. If you think you're holistic, you're not. You've just found a little th couple of things to make you feel self-righteous and superior to everybody else. And next generation, it'll be a different word and a different concept, but really, all the concepts and words of conceit are on a very short leash. It's about 40 years long, <laughs> right? Lawrence and Janet and Meryl and I have seen it all. <laughs> and you're just making the circle again, so give up your conceit. Youth is not special. It's in that nebulous area where people are watching and we'll find out whether you're helpful and that's all youth is most of you won't be helpful and a few of you will be and so get to work don't be snobs don't bother with the fads watch the apostle paul carefully <laughs> because 
Time has tested him, and he's been found to be good. Why Calvin on this section actually says about the Apostle Paul uh, something like, and we're not worth even being compared to him. He was so excellent. And so, the Apostle Paul refers to his ministry, all the gnarliness of his ministry that is condemned by all the people who cop a posture of being holistic today. He refers to all his ministry as being preaching the gospel. Right? The gospel must be an holistic thing. Full-orbed, completely integrated. Okay. And so this is what he says. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Now, why does he say he's under compulsion? Well, listen to what he says. Paul, Galatians 1.1, an apostle, and then he has this parenthetical statement. He says, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Do you understand why he's under compulsion? His apostolic office and duties are the command of God. Now, If you've ever been under compulsion, ever, it would have to be not quite as intense as being under the command of God. All right? Are you with me? God gave him his authority. He gave him his office. He gave him his gifts. He gave him his responsibility. And he says, I'm under compulsion. And then in Philippians 1.16... Speaking of why he does the work of the, of the apostolic office, he says, I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Appointed, okay? Compulsion, appointed, delegated, commanded from God. And so he says, for if I preach the gospel, that's the summary of his work, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. And then he says, For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, if I were to ask you whether you think Paul is woe if he doesn't preach the gospel, for two reasons you would say yes. Number one, I just read it from Scripture, and you know Scripture's true. But number two, you would say yes because all of us believe that anybody that has been called to preach the gospel should do it. There's an awful lot that rides on it, isn't there? And so we're prepared to immediately recognize that when the owner of the vineyard gives gifts, delegates authority and responsibility to one of his slaves under compulsion, that that slave better produce the fruit, better produce the profit that has been delegated, that he's had his gifts and his, his, his talents delegated for the purpose of producing, right? I'm giving you the call to preach the gospel. Woe is you if you don't do it. 
woe is you if you don't produce the fruit, right? Okay? We understand that. The world is the vineyard of God that certain men called to preach the gospel so that those who he has chosen will be saved, right? And so if I were then to apply it to pastors and elders and older women of the church and say they are under a compulsion to preach the gospel, to teach the gospel, and to shepherd for the gospel, for the salvation of souls, woe is them if they don't do it, you would agree with me, right? It's a scary thing to have been called by God to be an older woman of the church who teaches the younger woman and to refuse to do it. It's a scary thing to be an elder and to refuse to do it. It's a scary thing to be a deacon. It's a scary thing to be a shepherd, a pastor, and to not do it, isn't it? Right? None of you are objecting to me saying any of these things. You're all with me. What if you're called to strip and to wax the, this, this floor? What if your gift is stripping and waxing concrete floors? Is there any woe to refusing to do that? Are you under compulsion to strip and wax the church floor? It's a really stupid and hackneyed thing, but you know that if you point at somebody, you have four fingers pointing back at yourself. And so all you guys are pointing at me saying, woe is you if you don't preach the gospel. But there are four fingers pointing back at you. You remember Jesus' story of the talents? Remember the guy that had only one talent? All he did was strip and wax floors. And so what did he do with his talent? Well, he couldn't be the preacher. And so what did he do with his talent? Remember that? Well, I knew you were a harsh taskmaster, and you reap where you don't sow. And so I buried your talent in the ground, and here it is back. I gave you back what you gave to me. Somebody say it out loud. What did the master respond to him? Wicked and lazy servant. It's very interesting to me that it wasn't the really wealthy talent, you know, the lots of talents, but it was the one that got the least talents that was accusatory towards his master and that refused to take any risk and refused to produce a profit from what he had been given. And so when we watch the Apostle Paul talking about being a faithful steward of the gifts that God gave him for the building up of Christ's bride, we're all on board. How could the Corinthians despise him? But then we, we somehow don't make the application to ourselves that every single one of us in this room who is a believer has been given gifts for this church. Every single one of you. You know, this morning I was sitting there thinking that I would prefer to have somebody else pray the pastoral prayer. This morning. And I thought of having Stephen, but I thought, well, no, he was already up leading. And I'd prefer to have it be somebody who is a pastor because I want it to be a man who's learned to think of himself as a shepherd of sheep. 
permanently till death. Woe is him if he isn't. And so then I thought about David. So I looked over and I couldn't find David because he's not sitting where he's supposed to be. And I think that's because Andrew and Caitlin aren't singing, sitting where they're supposed to be. And I think that's because Caleb and Linda have taken Andrew and Caitlin's. And I... <laughs> what happened? I looked for you to pray. Then I thought to myself, then I thought to myself, no, I want David Wegner to pray because David Wegner believes in prayer. And so then I looked for David Wegner and he wasn't there. So you got me. Woe is David Wegner if he does, listen, listen. Woe is David Wagner if he does not pray for the church of Jesus Christ. So this morning I came in. And I'm walking through that door over there. And I'm not thinking much about anything except what I'm going to preach. And as I walk through the door, all of a sudden I look down and I go, Whoa! And my heart skips and leaps and jumps within me, literally. I mean, it's just... Bloop, bloop, bloop. I look at this floor, and I look back at the floor, and I look at this floor, and I go, oh, I'm cranked. This is, this is drop-dead gorgeous. In the first service, as I made this point, I did this. Let me show you what I did. Okay, I came over here and I knelt down and I did this. That's only the second time I've ever done that. I licked the floor just now. Those of you that couldn't see. And I'm not worried. I am not bothered. Now, what am I making a big deal out of the four for? Because my preaching of the gospel this morning has the strength and solidity and foundation and glory of Mike Bowles' concrete and Nathan Albertson stripping and waxing with all you men that helped him. And woe is Nathan Albertson if he does not strip and wax our floor. Because if he doesn't strip and wax our floor, and if Mike doesn't pour concrete, I can't preach. Do you understand that? <clears throat> Listen, every one of you has been given a gift, and it is no small thing to have a man whose gift is stripping and waxing a floor. Do you know something? Do you know that ever since Nathan quit cleaning our church that I have been angry at Nathan? And you, you think, well, this is a fine time to tell me, Louise. <laughs> Do you know why I'm angry at Nathan? Because I know Nathan and I share something, which is a love for cleaning. And it grieves me that a man that has been given the gift of the love of cleaning won't do it for his church. And so we're left with people that haven't a clue. Now that's, 
a little bit of an exaggeration because I actually don't think that the church is getting cleaned less well. I, I don't think that. But you know, if a man has a gift to give the church, how could he not? How could he not give the gift to the church? How could he not? Jesus gave his bride his blood. He gave his bride three years of humiliation and scorn. And we won't give stripping and waxing floors. Why? Because it's beneath us? Huh? I know that it's easy for you to dismiss what I say, some of you who are cynical by nature, and who say to me, well, you get paid and we don't. Do you know what I have always believed? I have always believed that the people in the church who don't get paid should be more accountable for the quality of their work than the people who do get paid. Why? Well, the reason is that the people who don't get paid are going to automatically think that the quality of their work and the zeal of it does not matter. And so I think we have to be much more intense in disciplining them about how they do their work for God and his bride, Christ's bride, because the money won't make the point. And so I'm always of the opinion that we have to be more intense with people who are volunteer workers in the church because they are not volunteer. What are they? They are under a compulsion. They are slaves of Christ. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. And there are big toes, and there are little toes, and there are middle toes. There are belly buttons, there are bottoms, there are brains, and there are mouths. There are ears, there are tongues, there are teeth. There are molars, and there are, that's the only name of a tooth I know, incisors is that right incisors but they're all in size and think of our temptation to think that what the middle toe doesn't doesn't do doesn't matter we won't miss it and I guarantee you that when Nathan Alverson strips and waxes this floor with the rest of you men I guarantee you that it makes my preaching better. Now, let's say your gift is stripping and waxing in floors and you don't do it. Woe is you. Let's say your gift is changing dirty diapers in the nursery 15 minutes after you're supposed to be off duty because the pastor goes on and on. And so you stop taking care of the children. Woe is you. Woe is you. 
you are under compulsion. And the compulsion comes from the fact that God, the Spirit of God, comes giving gifts. And you have been given a gift. And that gift is not for you to sit back and nurse it and, 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 and shine it and brush it and, 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 and paint it and, and, and pray to it. And, and That gift is to be spent in the service of his church. You want to know what your gift is. Yesterday I had a young man tell me what his gift was. I had asked him if he went to church, and he said no. And then he told me that God has called him, and he must have said that six or seven times in a row with great intensity, to a ministry. And I asked him what ministry. He said an evangelist. Does that young man have a gift to the ministry of evangelism? No. How do I know? Because he's not in the church. God doesn't give gifts of evangelism to those who despise the bride of Christ. Huh. Huh. The church is omniscient as to what your gift is. You are not. The church recognizes your gift. If you want to know what your gift is, just ask the people around you. They'll tell you. It's obvious. The church is omniscient when it comes to the gifts that God has given for the building up of the body. How many times elders have to deal with the fact that a man or a woman tells them what their gift is and refuses to hear otherwise? I grew up under the terror-inducing howls and screeches of a woman whose gift was singing solos, and nobody could tell her no. <laughs> it was awful, wasn't it, love? All kinds of people from the conservatory at Wheaton were in that church, and they let that woman do her thing. I don't know how much money her husband gave or what it was. <laughs> You've all been in churches where a woman that doesn't have the gift of singing sings, right? How many of you? Yep, yep, yep. Adam, I hope Don isn't offended. That's a joke. Don does have the gift of singing. All right. Do you use your gift for the building up of the body? Do you think because you're not paid and I am that that means you can do a slough-off job and I have to do good work? Are you the slave of God? And do you take delight in that? Or is your self-image and your precious conceit a little bit insulted? Do you think that you don't have to use your gift until people appreciate you? Can you imagine what the Apostle Paul would have done with his gift if he had waited until he was appreciated? Your wife doesn't appreciate your authority? Duh. You have been delegated authority in your marriage. Use it. You're going to wait until she wants you to use it? You've got to be crazy. <laughs> Don't you realize that until you use your authority, she won't appreciate it? And even then, there has to be a little like margin of sort of modesty you know 
You think your children should appreciate your authority as a mother before you use it? Do you think that elders should only eld if people listen to their exhortations and say thank you and stay in the church? You know what the Apostle Paul did? He gave the free offer of the gospel. And by that, I mean two things. I mean, number one, he didn't charge money. And I mean, number two, that he just sent it willy-nilly everywhere. He didn't try to predict who would respond. Why is it that we believe so much in the free offer of the gospel when it comes to hyper-Calvinism, but we're so stingy when it comes to any other gift in the church? It has to be appreciated before we use it. People have to be responsive. What's with that? Shouldn't we have the free offer of changing diapers and the free offer of discipline and the free offer of accountability and the free offer of rebuke and admonition? Huh? Shouldn't we? Now let me end with a couple personal statements about myself. Pastors don't like to preach this text because we get paid, most of us, and Paul didn't. And so I have two things to say to you about that. Number one, I want to remind you that Paul actually did take money from one church. And if you remember who that church was, I'll give you a hint. It was the church that got the sweetest letter, the sweetest epistle that Paul wrote. It was the Philippians. Why did he take money from the Philippians? Do you know something? I have had two churches that I'm just delighted to take money from. And I have had two churches where I would have been quite pleased to take no money from them. Actually, one church I would have been pleased to take no money from, and one church I would have been pleased to take no money from any of their officers. The congregation was beautiful. In other words, when the Apostle Paul took money from the Philippians, it was an indication of a very, very tender and loving and intimate relationship. In other words, the Philippians were not like the Corinthians. They knew who Paul was, and they honored him. And they would have held him accountable. They would have been part of that woe if he had been unfaithful to his work. Are you with me? And so that's my first comment. The Apostle Paul was, in fact, supported by the Philippian church at times. And so being supported by a church is actually a commendation to that church, at least as far as I'm concerned. If I tell you that I love getting paid by you, and if you hear me, I'm not simply saying it's so nice not to have to work or to work one day a week. One of the funniest things my brother Nathan ever did was one Sunday as he left college church, he stopped with Kent Hughes, and Kent was a good family friend, and he looked at Kent and he said, well, that's it for work this week for you, huh? 
That's the thing that drives pastors crazy. Anyhow, I'm not saying that I love getting paid because I love having the money. But I'm saying I love getting paid because with you, it's an indication of tenderness and affection and faith and a mutual obligation to use our gifts and a recognition of the dignity of the office of preaching the gospel. And so it's not simply connected to me, but it's actually connected to God that you fear God and you want to free up the ox to tread. You honor the office, and that's why I'm paid. You honor the office, all right? Now, here's the second thing. So the first thing is, Paul actually did get paid by some. That's an indication of his trust and affection for that church and of that church's respect for the office. And so it was a beautiful thing. Now, the second thing I want to say is, that's... (laughs) Okay, give me a second. Oh, I know what it is. You've heard me tell the story before of when I first went in the ministry. Um, I, a number of times, in elders' meetings and in my office, people would set up a point, and they'd come in and they'd tell me, you're not going to get paid if you continue to preach like you're preaching. And it wasn't because I wasn't making sense. It was because I was making too much sense. You with me? And you remember that one of the men said this right after I'd been to an auction of the public school system and they'd sold off a bunch of really good vacuum cleaners and so I bought three of them. And I had one sitting in the corner of my office. And the reason I had it sitting there was that I had been in the ministry a short time and up until then I had done a number of jobs at seminary including being a custodian. And I really miss being a custodian. The reason I miss being a custodian is that when I would strip and wax floors in the summer, and it would take days, if it was a large section of linoleum, it would take days to get it back down. And then you'd put on four or five coats, first a sealer and then about four coats of Johnson Complete, and you'd spray buff it to harden it. And when you were done, You'd stand at the end of the hall, and the the sun would be coming through the window of the classroom down there, and it would come right down that hallway. And there wouldn't be a scratch on it. It was gorgeous. And I'd always wanted to get down and lick the floor. I I would actually think about that. I would, I would go home and say to Mary Lee, you remember me saying this to you, that floor is so perfect, you could, you could lick it. And do you know something? You never get to lick the floor in the ministry. Because when you think the floor is done, all of a sudden it leaves the church and, and gives itself over to bitterness. And when you think there is no hope, all of a sudden it takes, it takes, it's, it sprouts. And all of a sudden, and I'm waiting for this, Richard. All of a sudden, it produces fruit. It's unbelievable. 
I'm over at the Bulls' house recently, and Seth is speaking to me of the things of God. And God is sovereign. And I am not. And I never get to lick the floor. Except insofar as I see the work of God and I, and then I lick the floor to acknowledge that he's the one that stripped it. He's the one that waxed it. He's the one that spray buffed it. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And so when that man looked at that vacuum cleaner, I said, look what's over in that corner. He told me he wasn't, they, I wasn't going to get paid anymore if I preached that way. I said, look over there. What's there? And he said, a vacuum cleaner. And I said, yeah. I said, uh, do you know something? I miss using that vacuum cleaner. And if you stop paying me, I'll be happy to start using it again. And I will support my family with that vacuum cleaner. And I will not stop preaching to you. See, he thought that I did it for money. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that any of your pastors here do what they do for money. Some of them it's obvious because you don't pay them anything. <laughs> but trust me, it's just as obvious for David Carell. You know how the Apostle Paul talks about money? And we're not supposed to talk about money today because we're all idolaters. But let me just tell you, you think that Stephen is here working as your shepherd because of money, but you should know that he started shepherding you when he wasn't getting paid a penny. Do you understand that? Are you with me? Only David Carell said we had to pay him before he came. But actually, that's not true. David Carell, when we interviewed him, David's holding this up right now. No, he's not. I was lying. He always tells me to stop, so I will, David, as soon as I'm done this. David Carell, when he came here, listen, this is very important for you to know. When David Carell came here, he gave up his beautiful little farm. He gave up a much better paying job. And then when he came, we gave him the privilege of giving much of his savings to our building campaign. So that's my answers to why I've avoided the issue of my getting paid and Paul not. Number one, you love the office of pastor and preacher. You honor it. And it's my joy to take money from you. I've never thought of threatening any of you with going out and getting a job and continuing to preach to you. Number two, there's not one man who gets any money from this church who would not continue to do his job if he didn't get paid anything. Am I right, Stephen? Am I right, Jake? I'm not asking Amanda. <laughs> oh, wait. 
That was Lucas. Am I right, Lucas? In fact, these men did their work before they were ever paid. So that's my answer. But what I really want you to leave here with is I want you to leave here with the understanding that you've been given gifts, and woe is you if you don't use them for the bride of Christ. Okay? Forget about me. Forget about the Apostle Paul. Four fingers back at yourself. What is your gift, and how are you using it for the building up of the bride of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the church. We are gaga in love with her. We thank you that we don't, in theory, submit to authority, but that we do submit to the authority of our elders. We thank you that we don't, in theory, love our brothers, but that we love the men and the women sitting in this church. We pray that you will give us faithful shepherds and faithful diaper changers and faithful strippers and waxers of floors and faithful pourers of concrete for many generations to come. In Jesus' name.